businesses depend on messaging. You used to call it advertising. Now it's messaging. You know, a business getting their message out to people via the Internet. And it's taken on a whole new set now of ethical issues, especially regarding privacy. I don't know if you've done this, but perhaps you've been searching the web and then you turn off your computer. Maybe, maybe you've searched the web. This happened to me recently, searching on Amazon for uh, a little speaker. I wanted to get a speaker system, uh, a little Blu-ray, or not Blu-ray, Bluetooth speaker for my iPod to play some music. And so I'm searching around and I turned it off. Next time I went back on the internet, there are all these ads popping up for speakers. I'm like, how do they know? (laughs) Made me a little uncomfortable. But businesses are doing this, and they're trying to get the message out. So I'm looking around, right, and I ended up on businessinsider.com, which I've never been to before in my life. Just want to let you know, it's not Rick. And there was an article there that the title of it caught my attention, so I began to read through it. The most powerful man in media would rather have relevant advertising than privacy. A what? So I read it. With an annual ad spend budget of more than $70 billion, media planner Group M is the largest purchaser of advertising in the entire world. I'd never even heard of them. In addition to the money it manages from big brands looking to get their messages out in front of the widest and most appropriate audiences, Group M also manages huge troves of consumer data through its Zaxxis division, which uses analytics to determine where brands should run ads online. Zaxxis and online ad buyers like it have been at the center of a debate over online privacy as the effectiveness of the campaign they run, campaigns they run requires anonymously tracking users as they surf the web. It, therefore, it doesn't come as a shock to hear what the company's global chairman, Erwin Gottlieb, had to say with regard to his preferences for how his own data should be managed. In a conversation Tuesday at Business Insider's Ignition Conference in New York City, Gottlieb said he would prefer the convenience of targeted advertising relevant to his interests to an assurance that his own privacy was secure. He said, I would rather have relevant messaging than have my privacy protected because the reality is that none of us have any privacy anyway, said Gottlieb who is considered by some to be the most powerful man in the media. Now, I I share that for two reasons. One, I think there's a relevance to our study, but two, just to freak you guys out. (laughs) Prophecy is divine messaging. Prophecy is God getting His Word out, and the way He does it is so remarkable to me, as you're going to see tonight. It's getting the Word out with regard to the business of the Lord to mankind. And the Word of God, as you know, remains the most relevant message ever given to humanity. As relevant today as the moment the first word of the Word of God was ever spoken. Its relevancy continues. And as far as privacy is concerned, well, (laughs) He already knows everything anyway, right? The Lord knows exactly what's going on in your life, in your heart, in your mind. And so strategically, His message goes right to the heart. His message meets us right where we are. He has a way, regardless of what Pastor Rick is talking about on any given Sunday or Wednesday, He has a way of reaching into people's lives that I don't have a clue about. And it's remarkable to me what His Word can do. It is divine messaging. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, and you can turn there, open your Bibles and get over to Daniel 8 if you're not already there. 
the prophet Daniel is on business for King Belshazzar. And as he's there on business, Belshazzar's business takes an immediate backseat to the business of King Jesus. We'll see that unfold before us. Chapter 8, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me. To me, Daniel. Subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. God is messaging. Daniel's out on a business trip. We know that from verse 27 at the end of the chapter. He's on the king's business. So that's why he's in Susa in Elam, and God picks this moment, this time, this place to reveal a new message. Not an ad campaign, because God's not selling something. God is offering something. But he reaches into Daniel's heart and into Daniel's mind and gives him vision in this interesting place. A few things to understand as we get started. First of all, it's 550 B.C. 550 B.C. So we're three years after the previous vision in chapter 7. Happened in 553 B.C. This is now three years later. This is the next vision in line that, that Daniel has. We don't know if there were any in between, but he certainly didn't mention any. So a little bit of time has passed. And I remind you that with the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, through the rest of the book of Daniel, the language reverts to Hebrew. Don't forget that. That's incredibly important in understanding the direction, in fact, the messaging, if you will, of of Daniel, of this prophetic book. Because chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 7, is written in the Chaldean Aramaic. We talked about why. It's because those are messages to the international stage. Messages to the nations, messages to the entire world. Now, now God is changing the direction of the message, speaking in Hebrew again, because the rest of the book is to the Jewish people. The rest of the book is spoken to Israel. It concerns the land of Israel. It concerns the people of Israel. Luke 21:24. Jesus said of Israel, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We've heard that verse, many of us, so many times. I think maybe we'll forget how profound it is. Jesus said that 2,000 years ago. And for 2,000 years, actually up until 1967, Jerusalem was trampled underfoot by the Gentiles exactly as Jesus said would be. You will see more prophetic precision tonight, and it should amaze you. So, 550 B.C., the language is now Hebrew once again, and we're in the city of Susa, or Susha. Today, it's Shush. Shush is 200 miles east of Babylon. It would eventually be the capital city of the Persian Empire. Therefore, Shush today, the city exists. It's in western Iran. The story of Esther took place in the capital of Susa, Esther chapter 1, verse 2. The story of Nehemiah begins in the capital of Susa. Nehemiah is the cupbearer for Artaxerxes the king in Persia in this same capital. And so this is a significant place. Well, here Daniel is in the capital of Susa, which is a Persian capital, but Persia is not the leader on the world stage yet, right? Babylon is. Remember that. Speaking of Persia, just in case you haven't been tracking these things, the first face-to-face talks in 36 years between the United States and Iran fell apart on Saturday. I was shocked. (laughs) 
Secretary of State John Kerry traveled to Geneva with high hopes of a good deal, which thankfully France opposed. The French stood up. Viva la France! (laughs) You might say, why, why, Rick? Why, thankfully, why do you want France to oppose a deal? Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who I quote often, uh, he quoted John Kerry as saying, no deal is better than a bad deal. And I'll tell you what, what's on the table right now is a bad deal. It is a bad deal. It allows Iran to keep all but 20% of their nuclear capability in exchange for removing the sanctions against Iran. Because we've looked into their eyes and we've seen their souls. (laughs) Come on. This is a bad deal. deal. Well, talks resume next week. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, like I said, it's no, um, no coincidence Daniel is in this Persian palace, the citadel of Susa, as the next vision comes. Because the next vision is about Persia. And Daniel is there. Here comes the vision. And the Lord now is going to narrow his messaging. He's already given us in chapter 7 a message of the beasts of the nations. Four beasts. Well, now he's going to narrow it down to just two. He's going to talk about two of the four. Dreams and visions here that marvelously depict the next few centuries of Israel's future that is following Daniel's time. What's amazing, it's called the time between the Testaments. Perhaps you've heard that phrase. From the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, what is called the Old Testament, to the beginning of the Christian Scriptures, so-called the New Testament, about a 400-year gap. People call that the silent years, the time of the Testaments. Gang, God was not silent in those 400 years. Just because His Word wasn't being written or, or increased upon at that time in written form, doesn't mean God wasn't at work, as you will see tonight. And Daniel prophesies about much of the things that happened in those 400 years. More than any other book in the Bible... More than any other Hebrew prophet, Daniel gives us prophetic information that he didn't even understand himself, mind you. But prophetic information about the time between the Testaments. Picking it up in verse 4. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now, the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. We should know the ram's identity, right? It's Persia, Medo-Persia, to be a little more precise. Nebuchadnezzar's chest and arms of silver, chapter 2. Daniel's vision of the lopsided bear. The bear with one side raised up, chapter 7. This is the ram of Persia. The ram of Persia. Now I'm focusing on Persia because what Daniel begins to see here is a decreasing of the Median influence and an increasing of the Persian kingdom. As the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon and would 11 years or so after this. So there's still another decade of Babylonian dominance before this begins to unfold. But as they came in and took control of of the kingdoms of the world, the Medes and the Persians, the Persians were stronger. The Persians were greater, and ultimately the Persians came to rule, and it was just one mighty Persia, the ram of Persia. Well, Rick, how can you be so sure? Because I read ahead. Look down at verse 20. 
The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. So that was easy, right? Why a ram? A couple of reasons why a ram. But understand, even before we get to the ram, that again, this happened, this vision was given, Medes and Persians were named 11 years before they took over Babylon. It would be like me saying, in 11 years, Canada will rule over the United States. And you'd say, well, we already have you know, medicine going that direction, so maybe the... I'm sorry. You might, you might say, well, that's ridiculous. How, how can you know something like that? Part of the reason the critics just are frustrated with, with Daniel is they look at that and they go, well, that, how, how could he know? That's too specific. How can he name the Medes and the Persians taking over Babylon before it happened? This has to be historical and not prophetic. And it just denies prophecy is all that does. It denies the possibility that maybe God knows before things happen what's going to happen and that He actually sees it. But here we are in Susa, the capital of what would be Persia. Persian Iran, or Persian, the Persian Ram. A <laughs> hundred years after this, the Persian king Artaxerxes will build a grand palace right there in Susa. The ram was the ancient national symbol of Persia. Well known in the day. There, if, you, if you look at, at Persian coins, from the time of Persia's dominance, they are all imprinted with rams. The ram was often on the headdress of the chief of state or of the king of Persia. In fact, Marcellinus in the 4th century wrote that the Persian ruler bore the head of a ram as he stood at the head of his army. So we're talking about Persia. It's obvious that it's Persia. The Bible tells us so. The two horns, again, speaking of the Medes and the Persians. But note this, one horn is longer and comes up after the first horn. The longer, greater horn that comes up after the first horn is Persia that then takes over as the mighty ram. We're told that the ram butted its way westward, northward, and southward. Well, what about eastward? Persia is eastward. So it's coming from the east and butting to the west and north and south. So again, it fits the the picture perfectly. But continuing on, what country then conquered the ram of Persia? Greece. So we should expect Greece to be next, right? Let's see. Verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Kind of a different take on four billy goats gruff. Right? <laughs> different story here. This goat is the goat of Greece. So we had the ram of Persia. Now we have the goat of Greece. How do we know? Look down at verse 21. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Who is the first king of Greece? Alexander the Great. 
Alexander the Great, first king of Greece, led Greece to their mighty conquest, did the whole thing, remember this, in 12 years. Once again, we come back to the critics of Daniel and they literally freak out over this one. How can he know Greece was going to rise to power and take out the Medes and the Persians after the Medes and the Persians who weren't even in power at the time he said this? It's impossible. Really gets their goat. Now, before Greece was named as a superpower, 210 years before it happened... Daniel calls out Greece. Well, Daniel didn't, but he writes it down in his vision. The Lord told me Greece is going to rule after the Medes and the Persians, after Babylon, who was currently ruling. The goat was a national symbol for the Grecian Empire as well. Um, the, the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea. Aegean means it's the Sea of the Goat. So even today, the Aegean Sea is the Sea of the Goat. Uh, Alexander's the Great Son, August. His name in the Greek literally means Son of the Goat which would make Alexander the goat. But the goat in these scriptures is powerful. He is fast moving. In fact, his feet don't even touch the ground. He moves so quickly. And as we saw last week, it took Alexander the Great, from the beginning of his campaigns at the age of 16, it took him 12 years to conquer the entire world. He was done at the age of 28. Sank into alcoholism. And died of pneumonia after an alcoholic stupor. He's the goat that moved incredibly, incredibly fast. Interesting story in about 332 B.C. Alexander was ravaging the known world. He was making his way uh, from Greece toward Egypt, destroying cities and countries along the way. He was just destroying everybody, waylaying them and then continuing on. And when he came to Jerusalem and camped outside the city of Jerusalem, it was Alexander's intention to wipe out Jerusalem as well. But something happened. The high priest, a priest by the name of Jedua, came out of Jerusalem and asked for an audience with Alexander the Great. Met up with him there in his tent, and they sat down and had a little Bible study. And Jedua read Alexander the Great, Daniel chapter 8. Alexander was so impressed by this section of the scroll that called out Greece 210 years before it happened that he decided to spare Jerusalem and left it alone and went on his way. But as you know, the large horn of Alexander would soon be broken, just as the prophecy says. His kingdom would continue, but not by his power, as the scriptures tell us as well. Verse 8, continuing on, tells us that in its place, the large horn was broken, in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. If you skip down and look at verse 22, it says... The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from this nation, although not with his power. And and truly that's what happened. Historically, Alexander the Great died and he had four commanders under him and those four commanders began to war it out for power over Greece. They ended up fighting it out, duking it out, and divided into four regions, the four winds, if you will, the four horns of the goat. And those four horns, we mentioned their names, I believe, last week. Cassander. Cassander, the Greek, took Europe to the west and ruled over Europe. Lysimachus. Lysimachus, if you're writing this down, it's L-Y-S-I-M-A-C-H-U-S. Lysimachus. He took Asia Minor. 
Asia Minor to the north, Turkey and the regions to the north. The Ptolemies, Ptolemy himself, went down into Egypt, conquering Egypt and holding Egypt to the south. And Seleucus, he took Asia, Babylon, and Syria to the east of the land of Israel. So they're all divided up. And note what's right in the middle of them is Israel. Right in the middle. Stuck right there. So guess where a lot of the battles were taking place? A little valley called Megiddo. Beautiful valley and a great place for war. A place that when Napoleon saw it, he wept because he would never be able to have a war there. You know, wish that he could go fight there someday. And so Israel was in the middle and was torn up by all the fighting and, and, and warring that went on between these, these four different groups that broke up from Alexander. It was still one empire, but the empire was always at war within itself. Four horns of the goat. However, because of all of this division, something happened that was remarkable, marvelous, wonderful. The Greek influence and culture and language spread across the entire civilized world. Everybody started speaking Greek, which is good. Why? Because that's the language that God decided to bring the New Testament in. And so before He brought the New Testament, He made sure that the entire world could read it. And that's how God works in history. It's it's a great example. Man has a will. Man's got free will, absolutely. But God's got a greater will that He is constantly working out. And over all history, while, while these four kings were duking it out, God was like, spread out, make sure they're speaking the language. Because I'm bringing salvation. And I want the world to hear. That's God's messaging. He's making sure that His Word is getting into the hands of people. Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. And so they did. And the Word got out via the Greek language, the common Koine Greek, the most common language of the day. God chose that for the New Testament. Well, I was talking to Hayden this last week. He had a history exam. And we were talking just a little bit about the Middle Ages and what was happening at that time. And it's great when he's studying history because it helps me. And as we discussed these things, he was, he was saying, Daniel, you know, it's interesting that the Bible stories taught in the Middle Ages were taught primarily by drama because most people didn't read, most people didn't have Bibles. In fact, most people weren't allowed to have Bibles. A phrase has been used that the Bible was chained to the pulpit in the Roman Catholic Church. The priest could have the Holy Scriptures, but nobody else, and the priest could tell you about that, but nobody else had the Word of God to read and study for themselves. So the Word was chained to the pulpit. And they would use dramas and passion plays and even stained glass windows to depict these great biblical stories. And then the Reformers came along. And they rightly put the Bible back in the hands of the common man. The Bible written in common Hebrew and common Greek. That the common man, the common woman, could understand and read and study for themselves. Which, are we not blessed to be able to do that right now? Thank you, Jesus, that we have His Word, and we, with each one of us, our own Bibles. You can go home and test this out. You can you can challenge me on things. Don't do it now. But you can challenge me on things, and we can have discussions, and we can really get into His Word. And you don't have to take my word for it. Take His. I'll tell you what's a little frustrating for me. And maybe this doesn't come as a surprise. But drama and other artistic tools are beginning to replace the Word of God in the church. 
even though we have the freedom to be in the Word of God. We say, let's go have a Bible study. But you show up at someone's house and they pass out books and they're not the Bible. They're books about the Bible. (laughs) Whatever happened... Lisa Neufeld sent me a great article this last week that was just called, Whatever Happened to Bible Study? Because back 30, 40, 50 years ago when people said we're having a Bible study, you would expect to go to someone's house, sit down and open a Bible. Not turn on a video by Beth Moore. And no offense to Beth Moore, I love Beth Moore. She's a great Bible teacher. But she's not the Bible. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. And so I ask you, does the Word of God need better targeting ad campaigns to make it more relevant? Or can we not be a people who learn to be in the Word? My challenge continues to be to each and every one of you to be students of the Word to the point that you can be a teacher of the Word. Because the more teachers of the Word we have, the more people are going to get saved. Because God's Word does not come back to Him empty. Well, these four empires grow up, and it's out of one of them, the Seleucid Empire, that another smaller horn grew, and with it, the intrigue of this prophecy grows as well. Verse 9. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. Or literally, just the beautiful. The sabi. Sabi in the Hebrew, which means beauty or glory or pleasant or goodly. And this is Israel. Daniel will refer to the beautiful land a couple of more times. In Daniel 11, verses 16 and verse 41, he just refers to Israel as the beautiful land, the sabi. More specifically, we're probably talking about Jerusalem here. Psalm 48 verse 2 says, Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Ezekiel uses the same word, Sabi, in Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 6. He says, I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt and into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory, the Sabi, the beauty of all lands. And again, Daniel will refer to Israel three times as the beautiful. But the beautiful land is caught in the middle of all these battles, right? Especially between the Seleucids in Syria and the Babylon region fighting, coming down against the Ptolemies in Egypt. They fought back and forth. Verse 10 tells us it grew up, this, this horn. Okay, this, this horn out of the four horns. So this is a Greek ruler, a Greek king. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. The host and the stars. Now we haven't even come to the point of understanding who this little horn, this smaller horn is, but what are the host or who are the host and the stars? And there are a couple of different perspectives that I found on this. One, there are those who think these are angels. We were just talking about at prayer, the angelic realm, the spiritual realm, and the warfare that is swirling around us, even as we speak tonight. A warfare that, to be honest, in my younger days of faith, I didn't really, well, I didn't pay any attention to. And when people talked about it, it sounded like the great, great stuff for a novel. But really? Until I came to Ephesians chapter 6, which declares that there is a spiritual warfare going on and ongoing. And we will see coming up in the next couple of chapters, especially chapter 10 of Daniel, an amazing description of this battle that is taking place in the spirit realm over the kingdom. 
that an angel has to fight his way through just to get to Daniel to bring answer to his prayers. And this is all just Bible. So there are those who think that the host here and the stars that that are falling are falling in this spiritual warfare. I think it's more likely that we're talking about Israel. Not to deny the spiritual warfare taking place. But the reason is twofold. Uh, First of all, this wouldn't be the first time that Israel is referred to as the host and the stars. Genesis 15, verse 5, God said to Abraham, or Abram at the time, look toward the heavens, count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Israel compared to the stars of heaven. Genesis 22.17, He said again to Abraham, Surely I will bless you, I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. And if you know your Bible, you know the story of Joseph who had a dream in Genesis 37 where he saw the stars and the sun and the moon bowing down before him. He said, Genesis 37 verse 9, I had another dream. He related it to his brothers. He said, Lo, I've had another dream and behold the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Sun being his father, the moon his mother, and the eleven stars his eleven brothers, the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 12 verse 41 tells us at the end of 430 years, the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So the host and the stars in this vision, remember it's a vision. It's not a real goat. The goat represents Greece. We're told that very specifically. The ram representing Persia before that. So the host and the stars are representing something other than the hosts of the heavens and the stars. And again, I believe it's Israel that we're talking about. Israel falling. And here's the second reason, maybe even more compelling than the first. When he says here in verse 10 that it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and trampled them down... The second reason I think that's Israel is that the host and the stars are being thrown down as a result of Israel's sin. This is a consequence of their sin. This is a punishment for their sin. Look at verse 11. It, this horn, this smaller horn, magnified itself, even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Well, the commander of the host, that's the Lord God. So he could be the commander of the host of angels or the commander of the host of Israel. Either way, we know who the commander is. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. We'll explain that in just a second here. Verse 12, And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground, and perform its will, and prosper. So it's Israel being thrown down as a consequence of uh, transgression, as a consequence of their own sin, God lifts the covering of protection that He so often would have over them, lifts it, and here comes this smaller horn, and He begins to seriously bring Israel into its own little tribulation. This is an incredibly specific prophecy. In fact, it's so remarkable. You need to understand, and there's been considerable debate over this that the smaller horn of Daniel chapter 8 in my studied opinion on this one is not the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 now if you were here when we studied Daniel chapter 7 we said very clearly the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 is the Antichrist and it's very specifically described as one who would come at the end of the age as Antichrist will rise This smaller horn is not that little horn. Not literally. 
This horn comes directly out of the four horns of the goat of Greece. The little horn came out of the beast of Rome. So it can't be the same persona here. Why would God do that? Before we go any further, why why would God signal a horn out of Rome as this nefarious future figure, and then in the very next vision He gives Daniel a horn out of Greece as an infamous figure? But it's not the same person. Oh, Lord, that's just confusing. Why do you do that? I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. From 171 to 164 B.C., this smaller horn came into power. And in fact, from 171 to 164, this egomaniacal leader persecuted Israel specifically. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV, to be specific. He called himself Theos Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He saw himself as a god. Theos Epiphanes. The Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the loon. <laughs> Madman, crazy guy. Epimenes in the, in the Hebrew is, is crazy. What does he do? Well, verse 12 tells us that this, this smaller horn, which is Antiochus, will fling truth to the ground. Antiochus Epiphanes came in as he, as he began to really persecute the Jews. He outlawed the reading of Torah. He gathered up all of the scrolls of the law that could be found throughout Jerusalem and he had a great book burning in the middle of the, in the, middle of the city. To destroy them, he flung truth to the ground. Verse 11 tells us that this smaller horn would magnify itself. Number one. Number two would remove the regular sacrifice, which at that point was going on, the morning and the evening sacrifice every day at the temple was going on. He would remove the regular sacrifice. And, number three, he would throw down the sanctuary, which is God's temple. Throw down. What does that mean? Destroy it? No. It means he will make it unusable. He will desecrate it. And Antiochus Epiphanes did just that. In 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes put up a statue of Zeus in the most holy place in the Jewish temple. He sacrificed a pig on the bronze altar. He spattered pig soup all over the inside of the most holy place to defile the temple. And he even forced many of the priests to drink pig's blood. This guy was vile. There's a name for this atrocity, an atrocity that will be replayed again. The abomination of desolation. This is the abomination of desolation. Specifically defined, it is the setting up of an idol in God's most holy sanctuary and the proclamation of one as being God rather than the one true God. And Antiochus did this exact thing in 168 B.C. Idol to Zeus? Pig soup? Proclaimed himself to be God. And the abomination of desolation will be repeated again. I guarantee it. It has not been repeated since then, by the way. It happened in 168 B.C. by Antiochus. In 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed the second time, this did not happen. The emperor Titus, or the the commander Titus at that time, of the Roman armies, when they came in in 70 A.D., he wanted to leave the temple alone. 
His men got out of control and threw a, a flaming torch or shot a flaming arrow, they're not sure, into the temple, starting a fire. Everything started burning down. The gold started melting. The men went nuts and tried to get all the melted gold they possibly could and started throwing the temple stones down one upon the other until not one was left standing. But they never set up a god, an idol, in the Holy of Holies. There was no abomination of desolation in A.D. 70. A.D. 70 cannot be what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. If you're not sure what that is, listen online. You can hear it there. Matthew 24. We have it. We have it online. It's going to be replayed. Now, you might say, well, Rick, that sounds kind of fanciful because I've been to the Temple Mount and there's no temple there today. There's the Dome of the Rock Mosque. There's the, or the Dome of the Rock uh, Shrine and there's the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but there's no temple. So how can the temple be defiled by this abomination of desolation? Note this. When Daniel wrote this down, there was no temple standing in Jerusalem. When Daniel wrote this down, he was still one of the exiles. They were still within the 70 years of exile in Babylon. The last thing the temple had, the last thing people had seen of the temple, it was burning to the ground. It was raised to the ground. So Daniel says, there's going to be defiling of the sanctuary. And if you read it in Daniel's day, you would have gone, Dude, there's no temple. What are you talking about? Defiling of the sanctuary. Same thing today. There's no temple right now. There will be. There has to be. Because Jesus says this is going to be replayed. Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see, future tense, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Jesus spoke of the past as an example for the future. Jesus spoke those words, you know, A.D. 32, right around in there. A.D. 33. Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. No abomination of desolation. Never has been one since Jesus said this is going to happen. And I have yet to find one single thing Jesus ever said was going to happen that hasn't happened. I trust that it will. Well, the Jews revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes. 80 to 100,000, depending on where you look, 80 to 100,000 Jews were killed in one day, massacred in the city of Jerusalem. Across the coming months, some estimate as many as a million more Jews were slaughtered by Antiochus. Verse 13, continuing on, Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now this is important. 2,300 evenings and mornings. And there really are two ways possibly to look at this. There's a third way that's completely wrong. The third way was uh, some have tried to put these days into years. These 2,300 evenings and mornings to say that's 2,300 years that he was talking about. A man by the name of William Miller did this, figuring that Jesus would return in 1844. And in 1844, 2,300 years after Cyrus decreed the rebuilding of the temple. So they they clocked it there and they said, well, yeah, then this must be the deal. 
And there were some good Bible expositors who wondered about that. Adam Clark was one of those who actually said, perhaps this is going to happen in 1844. William Miller's movement gave, gave birth to the Jehovah's Witnesses, to Seventh-day Adventism, um, and other movements as well. Miller, at that time in 1844, went up a mountain with about seven or 8,000 people. They all gathered up on this mountain, 1844, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited. Nothing happened. Now, Miller came down the mountain and claimed that the great second advent had taken place, but it took place in the heavens. The second coming of Jesus in the heavens rather than on the earth. People bought it and there's still a large following of that today. Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus says, Of that day and of that hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone knows the day and the hour. And some of you might say, well, Rick, I heard you talking about tetrads and blood moons. Sounds like you're trying to tell us when Jesus is coming. No, I'm not. Uh-uh. I'm saying it's likely. I'm saying live expecting Him daily. But don't ever put a date on it. That's up to the Father. And the truth is, the moment we put a date on it, you can mark that date off the calendar because He's coming at a time when you don't think. Right? The Bible's clear. The second advent of Jesus, listen, this is so important, it is not a heavenly coming. It is an earthly coming. And we are told specifically in Zechariah 14 that His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. We are told He will return to this earth. That He will establish a kingdom in fulfillment to all of the promises that God made to Israel for a kingdom for a thousand years. And again, you have to take the Bible literally to believe that. And if you spiritualize things and allegorize everything, then you know you can make it say whatever. But if you take it at its word, at face value, we know Jesus is coming back and He is coming to earthly Israel, to earthly Jerusalem, where He will establish His earthly kingdom. So what's the meaning of the 2300 Mornings and evenings. What exactly does that mean? Well, two possibilities, and both of them are very legitimate. Both, both of them actually work hand in hand. You could go either way. It could be 2,300 days. Because evening and morning is a Jewish day. Just like we see in Genesis chapter 1, about verse 5 or so, there was, there was evening and morning one day. Ever wonder why God does that in the creation story? He doesn't say there was morning and evening. He says there was evening and morning. Because that's the Jewish 24-hour day. And because he says evening and morning here, evening first, morning second, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, the holy place will be properly, until the holy place will be properly restored. And so it could have been 2,300 days that this would take place. be about seven years-ish. It can also mean 1,150 days. Exactly half. Why? Because evening and morning might be referring to the evening sacrifice and the morning sacrifice. Which means you would have 2,300 sacrifices, evening and morning, evening and morning, which would only cover 1,150 days. How does that all work out? On September the 6th, by Gregorian calendar, September the 6th, 171 B.C., the bloody reign of Antiochus Epiphanes began against Israel. That reign ran on. Uh, Beginning in 171, in 168 was the abomination of desolation. Right, that kicked off this this horrific situation there in the land of Israel. At that time, another story for you. I got a bunch of stories tonight. A Jewish priest stood up 
to the laws and the rules of Antiochus Epiphanes. He refused to sacrifice to the pagan altar of Zeus sitting there in the holy place. And in fact, this guy was such a a true passionate priest for the Lord that when another Jew, an apostate Jew, came in to sacrifice to Zeus, this priest killed him. The priest's name was Mattathias. And Mattathias was then executed. But he had five sons. Five boys, the oldest was named Judas. And these five sons, led by their eldest brother, regrouped in the hills of Judea. And they began to fight guerrilla warfare style against Antiochus Epiphanes and his great army. The Jewish fighters were called the Maccabees. The Maccabees, which I think is a great name, the Maccabees. In Hebrew, it means the hammer. And the hammer came down on the head of Antiochus Epiphanes. On December 25th, 165 B.C., the Maccabees, having succeeded in driving out Antiochus Epiphanes and his forces, cleaned out and reconsecrated the Holy Temple. So if we do the math of the 2300 days, or perhaps 1150 days, depending on which way you look at it, either based on the sacrifices or actual 24-hour days... If you count back 2,300 days from December 25th, 165 B.C., you land on September the 6th, 171 B.C., which is when Antiochus began his attacks on Israel, when he started his whole campaign against Israel, his savagery. But if you count back from 165 B.C. on December 26th, or 25th back to 168 B.C., you landed exactly on the day that Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple and stopped the sacrifices. So, either way it works. Either way the prophecy is absolutely fulfilled. And I think God did it this way so that either way, it works, it fits. Which one do I think it is? Not that it matters so much, but I lean toward it being the uh, evening and morning sacrifice. Because what he says is, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? When Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple, the abomination of desolation, for three years, all sacrifices to God stopped. The regular sacrifice ceased until the Maccabees brought it back in place. There's more to the story. Perhaps you know. They got into the temple, they cleansed it, they reconsecrated it, they relit the menorah, the lampstand, only to discover that they had one small jug of sealed olive oil that could be legitimately used for fueling the lampstand, enough for one day of burning. All the other oil had been desecrated. And the only thing they could do was try to consecrate more oil, but that would take eight days to accomplish And so they got together and they prayed, Lord, you delivered us from Antiochus. Now, give us enough oil to last eight days. And the lampstand burned for eight days without ceasing until they had enough oil to then refill the oil lamps. Happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah, uh, by the way, begins two weeks from tonight. If you uh, want to celebrate it this year, be my guest. Have some fun with that. It's also called the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights. And I like that. That's my favorite one is the Feast of Lights. The, the Hebrew, the, in the Hebrew language, the most common um, greeting is Chag Samiach, which means Happy Holiday. How close am I on that one? Chag Samiach. 
Hag Sameach. I was pretty close. Feel good about that. They also will say Hanukkah Sameach or Hag Urim Sameach. And that's my favorite one. Hag Urim Sameach, which means happy festival of lights. Happy holiday of lights. Urim being lights. And I love that because we're told in Isaiah 9 verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. John chapter 1, verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so even this season, as the Jewish people begin to celebrate the holiday of lights, the festival of lights, Hanukkah, so we begin to celebrate Christmas and the birth of the One who would bring light into the dark world. Well, Rick, I don't celebrate Christmas because it's it's really not uh, it's not prescribed in Scripture. I, I understand that, Scrooge. Um, but <laughs> but I also realize that Jesus celebrated things that were not prescribed in Scripture as well. One of them being Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Well, how do you know that? And do you really think Hanukkah was a miracle? I do. I think God did a miracle there. And I, part of the reason I believe that is because Jesus joins in on the celebration. John chapter 10, verse 22 says, At that time, the Feast of the Dedication, Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Jesus didn't go down to Jerusalem unless he was going down for a feast or a festival. He was there for Hanukkah. So Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, not prescribed in Torah, not one of the feast days that the Lord said, I want you to keep these seven feasts. No, it was just one that the Jewish people began to celebrate. And so I celebrate Christmas the same way. I know Jesus wasn't born in December, and if you didn't know that, sorry to ruin it for you. (laughs) And I know about all the pagan stuff, and I'm not interested in that. We don't worship our Christmas tree. But I'll tell you what, I love Walking home from this barn on Christmas Eve. It's one of my favorite walks of the year. Because late at night we have just worshipped. We have talked about when God punched a hole into reality, into the reality of humanity and took on flesh and did the absolute miraculous. And to me it's, it's very special. And so I, yeah, I celebrate Christmas to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, like I celebrate every Sunday, to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, and truly like we ought to celebrate every breath. Amen? Amen. To the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 15, continuing here, tells us, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Ulai, which means this voice is coming out from the middle of the Ulai Canal. (laughs) So something supernatural is going on here. I heard this voice between the banks of Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he, Gabriel, came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Huh. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. In other words, <laughs> Dan is, oh, and he's out. He's out cold. But he touched me and he made me to stand upright. He said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time 
of the end. And for the first time in Scripture, we meet Gabriel. We see the angel named. He is an angelic herald. His name is not Harold. His name is Gabriel, but he is a herald with a very special message. Gabriel is the angel God sends to announce God's salvation to Israel. That's what, that's what Gabriel gets to do. He brings the messages to Daniel. He brings messages to two other people. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Luke 1.18, Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? I am an old man and my wife is advanced in age. And you're going to give us a baby? It's kind of like Abraham and Sarah all over again. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Now, wait a minute. What do you think that would have done to Zacharias? Who knew the book of Daniel? Who knew this Gabriel had visited Daniel 500 years before? And all of a sudden, Zacharias is there. And Zacharias was in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place, before the temple of incense, offering incense, doing his priestly duty, praying, perhaps even praying, for his wife and here comes Gabriel I'm Gabriel you mean with the, from the scroll that, I, that Gabriel yeah and Gabriel says I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news Gabriel would also show up oh, a, a little while later few months, Luke 1, 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man who was named, whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Three people got to talk to Gabriel, Daniel, Zacharias, and Mary. Lord willing, when we finish the book of Daniel, my plan is we're going to go into Luke. And we'll we'll hit Luke about mid-December, which I think is just great timing. But there's a question that Gabriel raises here. Not intending to, but a question that comes out of what he says, and especially among Bible scholars trying to figure this prophecy out. He says, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. He says in verse 19, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now you read that and you go, okay, everything up to this point makes this Antiochus Epiphanes make sense until Gabriel shares. And then all of a sudden I'm going, wait a minute, if it's Antiochus, well that happened back in the 160s BC. So how can it be the time of the indignation which... Gang, when God talks about the indignation, He's talking about the time of Jacob's trouble. He's talking about the tribulation at the end of the age. Something that has yet to happen for Israel. And now all of a sudden, well, this pertains to the indignation. This is about the appointed time of the end. So what do we do with this? If it pertains to the end times, then shouldn't this smaller horn be Antichrist? Well, we come back to the earlier question I asked. If this is really about Antiochus Epiphanes, why confuse things by signifying him as a smaller horn when Antichrist was the little horn the chapter before? Which is it? Who are we talking about? All right, understand this. In the Hebrew here, the word pertains, and it's a really good word choice by the translators, pertains. The word pertains in the Hebrew is just a preposition. It's a real little word. It's le. Just L-E, le. 
It's Lahrab Yomim. Lahrab Yomim. La is, is the word pertains. Rab Yomim, many days. Lahrab Yomim. Pertaining to, having to do with, or to, too many days, is what he's saying. So what are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that all that we're talking about that truly happened historically with Antiochus Epiphanes pertains to the time of the end. Does it make sense? Let me put it another way. It's a prophecy of a history that itself is a prophecy. Daniel is given the prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene and acts out what Antichrist will act out in the end times, at the last days. Why? Because God is messaging. He's getting the message out. This is more than words. God's word has already described what's coming, what's going to happen. We've seen it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and now Daniel. But the Lord says, you know, they may not read my word. I'm going to give them a graphic example of exactly what's coming. And I'm going to tell them before it happens, by several hundred years, and then it'll happen. And then when I come there and I put on flesh, I'm going to say, remember the abomination of desolation of before? It's going to come again. You remember Antiochus Epiphanes before? Well, Antichrist is going to look very similar. Antiochus Epiphanes is an historical sneak peek at the coming Antichrist. John said in verse John 2.18, Children, it's the last hour. Just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, and from this we know it's the last hour. So John said it. There have been many examples of Antichrist in the world, across history. Nero. Hitler. I could give you a whole list. And Antiochus Epiphanes is one of those examples who came along. The Lord is messaging Israel through Daniel. See historically what happened? Will happen eventually. This anti-Semitic, demonized madman is a shadow, a type, a prefiguring of one who is to come. Verse 23. We've read the other verses. Skip to 23 now. In the latter period of their rule. Now that's the goat of Greece. Their rule, the the rule of Greece. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. Now he's still talking about Antiochus, but we now start to realize this Antiochus is a picture of Antichrist. So what is described about Antiochus, we can assume, also describes the Antichrist. Okay? A king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue or ambiguous speech. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. That is Israel. Verse 23. Skilled in intrigue. This guy is a master of Ambiguity. Sounds like the truth. I want it to be the truth until we discover it is not the truth. And I'm not going to give you any modern present day, exam- present day examples. I'm not going to go there. Verse 24 it tells us he's going to be influential, this Antichrist. As Antiochus was influential, a shrewd deceiver. 
Jesus said in Mark 13, 21, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, He's there, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, we have seen that happen. But my friends, realize Jesus is now talking to Israel and is warning Israel of that time of tribulation and of what is coming And there will be signs and wonders taking place by this Antichrist in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And the elect is not the church. We're referred to as the elect in other places. But here, the elect is Israel. Verse 24 also tells us that this this one's power will not be his own. Well, Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, speaking of Antichrist, says, "...the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority." And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, now if we read that sentence ahead of time and understood it, who would follow a beast? Well, people who are amazed by his intrigue and skill and and ability to speak and, and offer dreams and hopes and people will follow the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying... Who is like the beast? His power will not be his own. His power will be satanic. And in fact, when we get to Revelation, eventually, someday, maybe, Lord willing, maybe not, we will talk about this, that eventually a moment comes where the Antichrist is not just demon-possessed, he is Satan-possessed. That Satan himself enters this one. I'll go so far as to say there is a spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of Antichrist was on Antiochus Epiphanes. I think the same spirit of Antichrist was on Nero. I think it was on Hitler. The man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, I think the same spirit of Antichrist was probably in Judas on the night he betrayed Jesus. Because Judas is called the son of perdition and Antichrist is called the son of perdition or waste. Wow, verse 25. And through his shrewd... Now, you know what? If the, if the junior hires hadn't come in, we'd be done by now. I'm just saying. Verse 25. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many people while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. Who's that? That's Jesus, yeah. But he will be broken without human Agency. Antichrist, speaking of him, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.13, while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. And let me read this to you real quick. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-10. through 10. Just jot that down. You go back and, and read it on your own time. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Paul is talking about this. We've read this before, but it's important we get this in. Let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The day of the Lord is the tribulation. And that period of time will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Huh, that sounds like Antiochus Epiphanes, Paul's readers may have said. 
But Paul is talking about something to come, not something that had happened, not something past tense. Do you not remember, Paul says, while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I believe we're talking about the Holy Spirit in the church. When the church is raptured, taken out, the Holy Spirit will step out of the world and the world will be like it was in the days before the Spirit filled the church. The tribulation. He will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan and with power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Antichrist will be slayed by the breath of His mouth. Antichrist will be killed without human agency. It's not going to be a man who shoots and takes out Antichrist. One of the flaws, if you ever read the Left Behind series... One of the flaws in the series was that the, those who were left behind and then became followers, the tribulation force, they go out and they try to assassinate Antichrist. But he's going to be killed without human agency. So it was kind of a waste of fiction, that, that section in my opinion, if you read those books. Antiochus is a historical precursor. He set himself against the Jews. In so doing, he set himself against the king of the Jews, the prince of princes, Jesus himself. Gabriel told Daniel he'd be broken without human agency. Antiochus was broken without human agency. Did you know that? He didn't die in war. He wasn't assassinated like so many kings were. Antiochus, one year after withdrawing from Jerusalem, one year after the first Hanukkah, Antiochus Epiphanes died of a foul-wasting disease at the age of 52. And that's almost biblical. In fact, it is biblical. God said in Zechariah 14, verse 12, Now this will be the plague which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Here it is. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. (laughs) Bye-bye, Antiochus. Okay, So he dies not by a human attack, but he dies without human agency of a dread disease, of an illness. Verse 26, back in Daniel 8. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Lavrab Yamim. It pertains to future days. It is about future days. It is pointing toward future days. I think that's interesting. The many days. Many days. Both the days of Antiochus would be fulfilling this prophecy and the days of Antichrist yet to come. In Daniel's day, the vision was truly secret. And it was distant. And as you'll see here in the last verse, hard to understand. He didn't get it. He didn't have the context for it. In our day, the vision is close. The vision is unsealed. I've said before, I'm not worried about seeing Antichrist. I believe we'll be out of here before Antichrist comes on the scene. And we're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. Amen. Alright. Revelation 22, verse 10 says, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 27. Oh, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. 
Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision and there was none to explain it. So what do you do when you don't understand God's will for your life? What do you do when you don't understand His Word? I mean, rams and shaggy goats and horns and 2,300 days. Ah, what is this, Lord? I don't get it. What are you trying to tell me? What do you do in those seasons? Do what Daniel did. Stay on message. And carry on the king's business. Just carry on the king's business. We won't always know what God's up to. We won't always know what He's doing. We won't always understand what He's doing in our own lives. So what do you do? Carry on the king's business. 1 John 2.17 tells us the world is passing away and its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a, another astounding, amazing prophecy. And, and what's so amazing, Lord, is we get the privilege of studying these things, knowing when they were written, and how so much was remarkably fulfilled. And it reminds us again, Lord, it reminds me of what Spencer said earlier this evening, God's promises never fail. Your promises, Lord, they're uncountable. Your promises, Lord, are marvelous. Your message of grace through Jesus Christ is the greatest message, Lord, that has ever been spoken on the planet. And for this, we praise Your name. For this, we glorify and lift up the name of Jesus. Because this message, that there is truly a God who truly loves us and is truly coming back for us. That's marvelous. And may we be filled with that message. And may we, Lord, be lovers of the truth and speakers of the truth. Help us, Lord Jesus, to stay on message until You come. To carry on the King's business until You come. And Father, may the Word bless the hearts of everybody here tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.